Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind. Did I suddenly see you? Ooh, did I tell you I need you? Every single day of my life You didn't run, you didn't lie You knew I wanted just to hold you And had you gone, you knew in time We'd meet again for I had told you You were meant to be near me, ooh, and I want you to hear me say we'll be together every day. Hey there, and welcome to the One Sweet Dream Podcast. I am your host, Diana Erickson. Today is the second installment of the Maureen Cleave interview series. This time, we will shift our focus to her profile on Paul McCartney. This will be a two-part episode, and this is part one. Now, this was actually chronologically the fourth profile Maureen did. She focused on the Weybridge Esher contingent before moving to London and turning her lens to Paul. We've already recorded the John episode, but I decided to move this episode forward in honor of Paul's 80th birthday this week, because when I thought about what Paul might actually want for his birthday from a podcast, well, the only thing I could think of concerned his work and his legacy for his music to be enjoyed and the record to be set straight. And this interview does that in a way. It validates and vindicates the self-portrait that he would paint in the book many years from now, which has been positioned by some as defensive or corrective. But this interview proves that his version was in fact a pretty accurate portrayal of him at that time. This interview captures him when he was on top of the world, razor sharp, opinionated, witty, flirtatious, and seductive, relentlessly curious and immersed in the avant-garde art scene. As always, Maureen Cleave provides important additional insight, shrewdly noting how complicated Paul McCartney is, warning against making assumptions about him, and ultimately forecasting that he would surprise us all in the end. I suppose that depends on what you expected of Paul, but certainly she was correct in her prediction that McCartney would be an unstoppable force, and he has been. He's simply been a supernova that has continued to burn brightly. 
He's always played the long game, doing things his way. And of course, he's still on top, still performing for superhuman lengths of time without water. Is he human? Who knows? Anyways, he's still dropping sublime secret albums, still advocating for animals, still inspired by love and by the erotic, frisky rock star that he still is. And so in his way, he's still breaking down barriers and revolutionizing the world by redefining what it is to be old or older, which is to say, not all that different than he was at 23, as we'll see in this profile. Maybe that's the surprise that this guy who was so intriguing and seductive at 23 would remain so, that we'd never be able to take our eyes off him, that our love affair with him would never be over. Paul McCartney told us that in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. But I'm not sure that applies to Paul because he's created immeasurable, boundless love and joy. The good news is he can't stop. And how fortunate are we that he can't and what a privilege it has been to watch him. So happy birthday to Paul and long may you continue to astound us with your particular genius, magic, and joy. So let's jump into this fascinating Maureen Cleave profile. And I'm so lucky that I have Duncan Driver here again with me. Hello, Duncan. Welcome back. Thank you. As ever, lovely to be here. Can't wait to dive into another Maureen Cleave interview. Excellent. And I would also like to say happy birthday, Paul. I'm sure you're listening to this right now because what else would you be doing on your 80th birthday? Well, I can't think of anything better that he should be doing than listening <laughs> to this. So are you ready to go back in time and meet Mr. McCartney in 1966? I can't wait. Excellent. So just a little bit of background on how we're going to approach this episode. We're going to do the same thing we did for the Ringo episode. Duncan's going to read through the article, and when one of us has something to say, we'll call stop, and then we'll stop and comment on it. If it's anything like last time, we won't get too far. However, there will be a full read at the end of both episodes. So if you want to jump to the last 10 minutes and listen and then jump back, please do so. Otherwise, you can just walk through it with us. Does that sound like a plan, Duncan? Absolutely. Can't wait. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door the scene shifts from weybridge to london sorry i've not, i've had a i was going to read on but i've already had a thought that i'd like to share um, I like the way that's written as a, as a stage direction or like a screenplay direction because it reminds me of how um, cinematic Maureen Cleves' profiles are. Yeah. Don't you think that um, 
that the way she writes conjures a very vivid visual oh definitely and and often it's in mid shots like if paul's in conversation but then it'll have these little close-ups on details so yeah there's something very camera-like about the way she observes and writes oh definitely this is the fourth interview she did she did john then ringo then george and as you said, it's like the camera pulls away and mm. then focuses in on Paul McCartney. It's it's interesting. She really focuses on Paul being the independent um, mm. in, in London. And can you read the byline there too? Yeah, sure. How a Beetle Lives by Maureen Cleave. Paul all alone, running hard to catch up with the music. So, again, stop. It might take us a while to get through this. <laughs> okay, so this is the only headline I don't really like. I, you know, this confused me. The rest of the headlines I thought were pretty good summaries. This one I thought was a little misrepresentative of what Paul is saying in his interview. You know, the idea of Paul alone. Okay, she does really highlight that, so that was fine. But the running hard to catch up with the music, that one seemed a little misrepresentative. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's certainly a sense of him being uh, both restless and sponge-like yeah. in London in 1966. But that doesn't, what I don't get is a sense of Paul struggling to keep up with the pace of his own creativity, which is what that phrase would suggest. It gives me the sense that he is behind hmm. and working to catch, like the word catch up with the music is what throws me because she's catching Paul uh, you know, when he's on top of the world and opening his eyes. Yeah, uh, so I take your point. Yeah, all right. Paul McCartney's face often wears an expression of sweet, grave, and trusting innocence. The expression is an engaging one, but it is no clue to his character. Those who like to think of Paul writing yesterday, that song of aching beauty, would do well to remember that he himself always called it scrambled eggs. He is an interesting and complicated young man of 23. He arrives in the restaurant for lunch with a book he has just bought, a costly and significant looking paperback entitled In the Bronx and Other Stories. He opened it at random, composed his features, and in a solemn voice began to read it aloud. Lucy had no panties on. <laughs> okay, stop straight out of the gate. She drops a profound and brilliant observation about McCartney how defined Paul is by his looks and his expression, and secondarily by his gift of melody, and how incorrect and misleading it is to make assumptions about his character based on this criteria. Because, as she highlights later in the profile, he is much more complicated than that. Yeah. You know? Mm. Yeah, I, I um, when I first read that, line um the expression is an engaging one but it is no clue to his character i wanted to disagree with it a little bit um i take the point that that she's making paul is the cute one but he's a lot more complex than that below the surface veneer of cuteness um but i also i, I want to quibble with it a little bit and say i think his expression is a clue to his character um in that uh, I think the the appearance of innocence yep. is like the expression that his interest and curiosity wears. So it, it comes across as sweet and innocent, whereas yes. it's just kind of, it's more curiosity about the world. Don't you think? 
I do. And I was going to make that point eventually. So I mean, it's, it's great to address it straight up. I think you're right that, so she makes the point, but it is no clue to his character. I mm. like her provocative statement there because it kind of stops you in your tracks and makes you think, yeah, I do. You know, we do tend to think of Paul this way, but I would amend that statement and say that it does not provide the full picture of Paul because yeah. I do think you're right. I think he's got a certain innocence about the nature of humans, a trusting mm. innocence. You know, he thinks ultimately people are good. He's talked about that a lot. He wants the good guy to win. And there mm. is a sweetness to Paul, you know, like, mm. so I agree. All of those are true, but I think they are also not the sole defining characteristics of Paul. Yeah. So what I found so interesting is she lays these out and she says he's viewed as great, but then she gives an example of, well, let's remember, this is a guy who called his achingly beautiful song yesterday, Scrambled Eggs. So he's also kind of silly and playful. And, you know, she says innocent and trusting. And yet I think the Paul that she meets is very savvy and knowing. And he's reading a book and he's immediately provocative with her. And instead of being sweet, he's very naughty and flirtatious. You know, mm. within minutes, he's found this very suggestive line about Lucy and her lack of panties. So I think that, yes, those things are part of Paul, but the opposite is true of Paul, too. So, yes, he's innocent in some ways, and in some ways, he's very, very savvy. In some ways, he's grave and deep. But in some ways, his humor kind of defines him. And I think one of the really defining characteristics of Paul McCartney is um, the fact that he is, um, he's a pretty sexual guy. You know, he's the guy that basically said this year in this book of, of uh, lyrics, eroticism was a driving force behind everything I wrote. So I don't totally agree with what she's saying. But I think she makes such a bold statement to disrupt our view because to her, there is so much more to Paul and other elements of his character are much more important or dominant to her. Uh, you remind me of an anecdote. Um, you know, the song Bright Eyes, it was written for the 1970s animated version of Watership Down. Art Garfunkel sang it and it was quite a big hit. Mm -hmm. But um, I can't remember the name of the composer who wrote it. But he was talking about a, a moment where he encountered Paul McCartney and Paul saw him and does this thing that Paul does, which is he, he lets the person know he knows something about them. Like if it was an actor, he might say, I saw you in that movie or something like that. But in this case, he started singing the tune to the song Bright Eyes from Watership Down, but he replaced the lyrics. So um, in the original version, the song goes, bright eyes burning like fire but paul saw the composer and just started singing big tits wobbling <laughs> like jelly <laughs> again there's that that naughtiness the the kind of erotic drive where, oh, yeah. where his mind goes yeah exactly i've seen a, a video where paul does a word association it's from the 80s and basically his association to everything is sex it's like music sex performing sex linda sex and i think the um, description of paul as being innocent and sweet and trusting does not conjure a sexiness like a, a guy who's very provocative and very driven by sex 
And the funny thing is, it's there in all the literature. Like everybody says this about Paul. Paul says this about himself. And yet it's so not a part of his image, right? Yeah. And it's it's there in the music, for God's sake. Well, absolutely. If you look at Paul's music, you know, there's a lot of sexual innuendo. It's not on the surface, but it's underneath. And, and the humor and the sexiness of Paul are what make him really magnetic and, and charismatic. Because if it was just the sweet, trusting Paul that she describes, he would be very boring. <laughs> and he's not boring. <laughs> you know, and I think people who kind of criticize Paul don't get the complexity of him, don't get the underlying um, savviness, the, the um, wittiness, you know? Yeah, I think the people who would be most inclined to think of him as a, a kind of vacuous, cute beetle yeah. are the same people who would regard him as somebody who once hosted a game show and that sort of B-list celebrity thing. And he's neither of those things. Or else you get people who really admire Paul as a genius musician. But I think a lot of people think he's a good guy, which I think he is a good guy. I think, like we said at the beginning, you know, I think this is part of Paul's character, but he's got this other side too. And I think there are some people who like Paul, but they simplify him into this really sweet guy, you know, that looks up to John Lennon and hero worships him. And that kind of guy wouldn't be that interesting to John. The guy that's interesting to John is the guy that can rival him and plays every bit as many games as John and tries to outdo John and is funny. And so I like the fact that straight out of the gate, she's like, you know what? You think this about Paul based on a few things, his lovely sweet looks and a few songs that are really beautiful. Well, that's a mistake. And, and it's a mistake because he's a super complicated guy. And I, if nothing else, I wish people took that line from this article. Yeah, me too. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. I need to laugh. And when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good in a special way. He also, in his first paragraph, gives us a massive clue to Paul McCartney in that she says he arrived in the restaurant for lunch with a book. So straight off the bat, she tells us Paul McCartney is not letting us into his world. You know, the first three profiles were in the houses of the Beatles. They were incredibly open, you know, and this tells us Paul McCartney is very controlled. He's got his boundaries. You know, there are actual functional reasons why he needs her because he's still living with the Ashers at this point. So there are reasons that he's doing this. But he could have done this interview, you know, in a room at the Ashers' house, or he's already got his new place. He could have invited her over and showed her this is the work in progress. But he meets her in a restaurant, which shows how private he is and how in control he is. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I think you're quite right. Um, I get the sense that... With the other three interviews, if Maureen hadn't been there, they would have looked roughly the same as they did and been doing roughly the same things. Whereas everything about this situation and the way Paul has styled himself is suited for this interview. 
I mean, even down to the fact that he comes carrying this book seems like a bit of a, a, a contrivance on his part. Like he wants Maureen Cleave to be aware of the fact that he reads books. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought it and started reading from it. <laughs> I don't know if he randomly found that page with Lucy has no panties on. That gives me a lot of information about how flirtatious Paul is, what a player he is, and how, frankly, in control of the situation he is. In any of the three other profiles, she can observe both what they say as well as their environment, you know? And so she can kind of counter what they say or build on it. You know, John's house is littered with his recent acquisitions, you know, everything he's interested in, where she doesn't get to see that about Paul. So really, all she's got is Paul McCartney, what he looks like, and the book. Yeah, totally. I wish we, we would have had her observations of Cavendish after, you know, as we discussed. Yeah, yeah, the smell of cabbage wafting up from the basement. <laughs> right. <laughs> and his version of elegant. I would have loved her take on it. That's right. Yeah, I think she'd probably realized that what to Paul seems elegant is actually kind of dowdy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe Paul was on top of shabby chic way before his time, you know, because I think he's pulled from... Liverpool and then taken the eccentric shabby chic of the Ashers and mm. put that together for Cavendish yeah. Avenue. Based on the brief, he wanted it elegant yet also smelling like cabbage was coming from the basement. The only man of 23 who'd want his own house to be grandmotherish. <laughs> and we can see this is the theme. Okay, so finally we can continue. I have nothing more to say about this. All right, all right. Um, again, tell me when to stop. Paul's party political program is for more houses, more buses, and more old-age pensioners for everyone. There we yes. go. Oh, there we go. There. More we get... old-age pensioners. Yes. He even wants it in his own house. Yeah. Exactly. With Paul McCartney, you cannot get away from old people. We can't get two paragraphs in without Paul talking about his love of buses and old people. Yes. So, yes, Paul McCartney has not changed in 50 years. I'll bet he got the bus to the restaurant, too. <laughs> he probably did. <laughs> He is tall, agile, neatly dressed, and well-organized. His hair is never too long, and he is never at a loss for words. He is a terrible tease, an excellent mimic. He has wicked charm, a shriveling wit, a critical intelligence, and enormous talent. With Paul, you never get away with the ill-considered remark, the hazy recollection. He is self-conscious, nervy, restless, and on the go. He will surprise us all in the end. Okay, stop. Well, all there's right. a lot there, isn't there? There is a lot there. I talked about in the John profile that that was one of my all-time favorite descriptions of John. And I, I think this is one of my all-time favorite descriptions of Paul as well. You know, in both cases, she gets the contradictions that make them so interesting, you know, and she really zeroes in on some of their um, defining characteristics. I remember the first time I, I read this interview, I think it was probably sometime in the 90s mm -hmm. when um, Paul was, was still married to Linda. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I found the phrase neatly dressed and well organized <laughs> to, 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 to sort of misrepresent Paul now. I think it definitely did represent Paul in the, the early mid to mid 60s. Maybe not so much from like 1969 to 1979. But it's interesting that now I would say he probably is once again quite neatly dressed and well organized. 
I always suspected that, that was probably more his style and he had adopted Linda's style of, you know, being more relaxed. They kind of merged styles or he picked up on her style. Um, so this is probably more Paul naturally. Yeah. Um, but I like this description of him neatly dressed, well-organized, hair never too long and never at a loss for words. Suggests somebody who is very in control of their wit, their power, their charm, all that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, also somebody who's maybe a little self-conscious and a little bit anxious by temperament. Yeah. Um, the, the other phrase that I found didn't necessarily represent Paul the first time I read this yeah. was the phrase, he is never at a loss for words. And all <laughs> yeah, I could yeah. see in my head was Paul say, drag, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There are some famous examples of Paul being quite lost for words, but it seems to be a direct index of his confidence at the time. Yes. And I'd say 1966, he's at the height of his confidence. And so he is never at a loss for words. Well, that's why I find this profile to be really interesting because the way she defines him, I can imagine him this way. I think the fact that Maureen is a woman and is a fun, engaging, brilliant woman, I think that probably brings this side of Paul out you know, he's performing in the way that John was performing for her. I think Paul is performing for her. And I think he's good with performing for women. I think Paul yeah. is probably more comfortable with a woman because the idea of a terrible tease and, and being provocative and suggestive and, you know, playful with her, it, he's probably more able to do this than with a male journalist. John seems to love the... Um, closeness with male journalists. He likes to go deep with them, whereas Paul seems to have very little interest in that. And so maybe she's able to draw this out of him. But I also agree with you that Paul's incredibly sharp at this time, and he's feeling very good and very confident. Yeah. I like the way that this phrase, wicked charm, shriveling wit, critical intelligence, and enormous talent, um, is... What's the word for it? Well, if you took it out of context and just asked a random person, which Beatle do you think that phrase would have been written about in 1966? I'd yes. say most people would assume it's about John Lennon. Yes. And it's curious then that a lot of very Lennon-esque qualities are associated with Paul quite rightly. And to me, that suggests Maureen is acutely aware of how similar they are, despite the fact that the article emphasizes a lot of differences as well. Well, it does. You know, I was thinking about some of the words at the beginning, like innocent and trusting. That kind of describes John in some ways. You know how we talked about in his profile, he comes off as more childlike and trusting. And, you know, those are associated with Paul McCartney because of his music. And so obviously it is an element of Paul because his music reflects him. But um, those are also John Lennon and really John Lennon in real life, you know, that he, he tends to trust people that he probably should not trust, you know. But what I find interesting about this, too, is the words wicked, shriveling. They suggest that Paul is not this goody two shoes that sometimes his his image seems to suggest, you know, and again, this naughtiness, uh, wickedness that is also core to Paul. And I think that's what makes John and Paul really good friends. John has said this, that you, you know, that you think I'm the tough one. You think I'm the one with the shriveling wit. 
you should meet my partner, Paul. He said this in the mid 60s. The interesting thing is, I don't think necessarily this is something that Paul wears on his sleeve. You know, he's witty in public, but not shriveling. And and the wicked charm is something that I think he is with women. And I think it does seep into his music. But again, I think that these are things more that are Paul McCartney in reality versus what he projects. Do you think? I do. It reminds me of, you know, two different kinds of schoolboy, whereas John would say something alarming and... Um, provocative in front of the entire class, Paul would say, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, and then draw a nasty caricature of the teacher and pass it around the other students. That's sort of the difference in my mind. Uh, yeah, although I know that uh, Beatles scholars will take that and say, well, therefore, John was more honest, you know? Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of it in that way. Um, it's, just, it's a different way of, I suppose reacting to authority or um, or being rebellious. I also think it is their approach to the world. Paul is polite. He wants to put people at ease. I think when he's comfortable with them, he'll be much more playful and with the wicked charm, you know, because that suggests that he's a little bit inauthentic, you know, that he'll be nice to the teachers to their face and then nasty about them when they're not yeah. looking. I don't think it's as simple as that. I don't think Paul is nice to the teacher in a meretricious and dishonest way. He's nice to the teacher because he wants to be nice to the teacher. Yes. And a part of him admires the teacher. Yes. And so it's not difficult for him to do that. But there's another part of him that also um, sympathizes with the, the rebellious and, and wants to and can yeah. make fun of the teachers. So it's actually just an index of his complexity. Not exactly. that one part of it is inauthentic. Exactly. And, you know, in Salovich's book on Paul, it talks to a teacher or somebody that knew them both and said that Paul and John had equally shriveling wits, but Paul would never quite go for the jugular in the way that John would. And I think that John would go for the jugular sometimes out of defensiveness versus one gets the sense that Paul won't quite go there, at least to their face. You know, I think there is perhaps a, a regard for people's feelings, but the fact that they share this, it suggests why they would have gotten along so well. The, the idea of Paul being a terrible tease and an excellent mimic, that actually reminds me of um, John's song, Dig a Pony, where he says, uh, you can imitate, imitate everyone, you know? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And there's lots of accounts of Paul being an incredible mimic. Like, apparently he could mimic Mick Jagger perfectly. And it was a little bit um, cruel. I was a little caricaturist. That's one of the things that Paul can do very well. And obviously he can mimic Elvis or... Donald Trump, said. according to his, <laughs> his, uh, his lyrics co-author. Oh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But that suggests that how playful Paul is behind the scene, you know, I liked this element that she is highlighting, that Paul can be sharp, quick, brutal in a way that he's not a goody two shoes, and that he's fun to be with, you know? Yeah. Look, I don't know quite what to make of that last bit. He will surprise us all in the end. Surprises how? Does she mean that he'll reveal himself to be even more accomplished than he already has? Or does she mean by doing something unexpected? 
Well, this is how I take it. So I think that there is a built-in assumption. If we go to the beginning where she talks about the innocence, the trusting, the writer of great, you know, achingly beautiful melodies, I think there's a sense of a simpleness, a sweetness about Paul. And she's just portrayed him as complex, monumentally gifted, like a dynamo, a force of nature. You know, so I think when she says he will surprise us all in the end, there's an assumption that he's gifted, but maybe limited or that he doesn't have the ambition to get right to the top. I've always, always loved this statement because to me, it's such a major statement about Paul's ambition that you think that he's just these things. I think she's saying he's unstoppable. Don't you think? Yeah, well, I, I genuinely didn't know. Uh, I found that one a, a challenging bit to try and interpret, but I think you're probably quite right. I can't think of a better way of explaining it than that, at least. Well, I think she's saying, don't underestimate him. I think she's betraying her own assumptions. Yes. And maybe the public assumptions that John is the leader of the Beatles. Like, I think that may be built in. And I think she's realizing what a force Paul is. And so that's how I've always read it. In some ways, it's a little bit of an insult because it assumes that we would be surprised to know that he's going to be the most famous of them all. Like, that's how I take it. She's saying he will surprise us all in the end in what he can do. Okay, yeah, no, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> I'm looking through you. There's a couple of other points in here that I think are interesting. The, with Paul, you never get away with the ill-considered remark. And she also mentions his critical intelligence that, you know, I've said this a number of times that I think Paul is so incredibly sharp. And that is often, again, associated with John because John is very sharp, especially in public when he's on, especially um, when he's being interviewed, he's so articulate and can address any subject. Paul's not as good, but I think that people who know him, and even John talked about that, that, you know, he, he felt safe being with Paul because he was so smart. So I think she's giving us insight to what Paul is like in real life. You know, Paul has said that John wouldn't suffer fools. And I think Paul absolutely would not suffer fools, you know, that you don't get away with a hazy recollection. And the interesting thing is Paul has always had an incredible memory for everything. And I mentioned on this podcast before that I've seen Paul McCartney twice in real life. And the thing that surprised me, I sort of was thinking of, of him as, you know, old man, gentlemanly Paul. And the thing that struck me is his eyes. They were like laser beams. It was just a little bit of a shock of, he's an incredibly brilliant man. I mean, he was lovely looking, but it was his sharpness was, was what stuck with me. Yeah, I um, 
I like to the reference to him being self-conscious, nervy, restless, and on the go. And I think she's quite right to point to those characteristics. In a way, they're a little bit contradictory to the Paul who um, is so comfortable with things that would um, potentially be confronting or, or challenging to other people, like um, doing a major newspaper profile or walking on stage. Like, um, there's a story of when Paul was playing Eleanor Rigby with the London Symphony Orchestra. He turned up like th in the last three minutes of their rehearsal time and was completely comfortable going through it just once before playing it to millions of people. Now that's, that's one side of Paul, but he does also have this self-conscious, nervy, restless, on-the-go quality, which would lead to him not turning up to rehearsal until three minutes beforehand because he was, you know, um, restlessly doing something else. <laughs> then he turns up and does three minutes of rehearsal and then he'll be on to the next thing. So there's this sort of bizarre, fascinating, complex combination of um, nervous self-consciousness and restlessness. And on the other hand, being quite at ease or quite comfortable in situations that would be terribly confronting to the average person yeah. and just to go from one to the other to the next to the next well and i i suspect that the self-conscious nervy restless on the go side of paul is that's his ambition wanting to learn things competitive restless what next whereas i suspect he settles down when he's in his music mode you know what i mean like i think that's paul's happy calm space i tend to think of paul mccartney as having an inner like an inner core of just this deep artist and it's surrounded by this other person that he likes the cloak of normal guy but is also the driven person, uh, the driven side of Paul, you know? I think if you got into, you know, the studio with Paul or he's in music mode, he's probably relaxed and sort of at his best. I've always said that I'd want to interview Paul McCartney at a piano or with a guitar in hand, because I think that that is where he probably wouldn't be self-conscious, you know? i tell you where it would be good to interview Paul. Where? Is if you were both doing like a four, five hour drive together. Yes, yes, exactly. He goes into his Zen creative exactly. space when he's driving. His beta mode, exactly, yeah. exactly. But also she pulled out nervy, agile, you know, this, this element to Paul, I think is important because when you look at the Beatles, they have so much energy. One of the defining characteristics of the Beatles is energy, especially their, their early work. But even if you look at Get Back, when they're performing, you see Paul stomp his foot. It's like he's trying to inject energy into their performance. And so I think that Paul injects a lot of his personal energy his nerviness, like you watch Paul McCartney and it can never stop. It's kind of, it's probably annoying to be around because he's kind of physically hyper. But I think that that energy, that restless physical energy probably is fused into their performance and into their work too, you know? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, all those barks and yelps and... <laughs> The hey hey's and woohoo's. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I feel like Paul, especially in John's songs in the early days, would come in and just bring it to another level with his 
with his voice, but also he just brings a shot of energy uh, to everything that they do. And I think it's a passion for what they do, but I think that's part of Paul's persona and maybe his love of what they do. But I think he just is blessed with an incredible amount of energy, you know? Yeah, I do. do. When I call you up she has readjusted our view of Paul, you know, like in these first three paragraphs, she's come in and stated a very different view of Paul. You know, Paul going into this was the cute one and the one who wrote yesterday. And all of a sudden she's saying that he's ambitious, he's nervy, he's naughty, he's sharp and and wickedly funny. Like she's really painting a different picture of Paul. And I must say that I love this portrayal of Paul because when I was doing the breakup series and, and, you know, I had a pretty good understanding of Paul McCartney, but I found that when I was really going deep in order to challenge a lot of the conventional wisdom, I had to get my hands on everything I could find, every small article, you know, online interview. And it was confusing because the way people wrote about Paul was so divergent. You know, there'd be one view and then there'd be another. And I was like, I don't even know how to reconcile these views of Paul. And then I sort of thought, well, you know, the story's been really distorted and I didn't want to take some of the really negative stuff about Paul to heart because I had a view of him being a good guy and, you know, sort of being maybe a little bit self-centered and cocky and egotistical fine but a good guy, which I still think he is. But there were certain things like, I went to the website, Meet the Beatles for Real, and there was a bunch of accounts from um, the fans that would stand outside of Paul's house in 1968. And I read a bunch of them, and I really had to adjust my view of Paul. Like, basically, I kind of had a crisis one day, because I was like, all right, I got to rethink this guy, you know? And I realized reading through all of these accounts that he was different. Like he was very playful with them and he teased them a lot. He wasn't sweet. You know, I kind of had assumed the sweetness to Paul McCartney and he would tease them and he would make fun of them. And he was very self-centered and cocky and kind of rock star-ish, you know? And Then I started thinking about his music and how much the sexual element was in his music. And it made me think of the fact that that's why Paul McCartney is a more interesting rock star than I think his surface image would have us believe. Like, basically, I had to accept the fact that just the nice, sweet side of Paul is not Paul McCartney. 
there is a side that is very seductive. There's a side of Paul that is tough and aggressive. Like some of these accounts of Paul that people said that maybe didn't like him as much are true to him too. And it made me come to terms with, yeah, that he's tougher and he's kind of sexier and he isn't always sweet and he can be moody and capricious and obsessive. No, I, th- I think he can be an asshole when he wants to be. And he can be calculating and wily and a little bit crazy, which is pretty unsurprising given the level of artist he is. And ultimately, despite the additional flaws that I had to incorporate into my view, I kind of liked that Paul McCartney. Once I adjusted my view, I was kind of like, okay, this is a much more interesting guy. Yeah, it's a little bit like the difference between Martin Luther Lennon yes. and John yes. Lennon. Yes, that's a great point. That if you came in believing in, uh, you know, the John and Yoko version of John, the the man of peace, imagine John, and you love that, and then you heard some negative stuff about him, and then you were trying to reconcile that, and then you went into Beatles John, and then got all the all the humor and the eccentricity, and the childlike stuff of John. All of a sudden. John is so interesting and fascinating. And I think like intuitively going into the breakup series, I felt like Paul McCartney had a lot more power in the relationship with John than he was ever given credit for. That's what his actions reflected. And I was trying to reconcile that and then putting it all together and understanding that Paul was much more of a player Mm -hmm that he understood his own power, that he was sharper, Mm -hmm. that he was tougher. All of that stuff made me understand the dynamic between Lennon and McCartney more clearly. And it also made me understand Paul's role in the breakup. So I think the things that she is highlighting, the wickeder, naughtier, more mercurial side of Paul. This part is more elusive, more unexpected. And I was... She doesn't make this point, but when I was thinking about her description, I was thinking I get such a sense of action from Paul's profile in a way that I didn't from the others. And it occurred to me that Paul McCartney is fascinating in that despite being outrageously gifted, he does not position himself as the object of desire. Even though he's beautiful and talented, he's the one that is working hard. You know what I mean? He never sits back and allows himself to be pursued. He just goes after what he wants, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of feel like Mick Jagger. You know, there's a, a vanity to Mick Jagger that he kind of positions himself as the object of desire. And McCartney, even though he could have done that, doesn't. Mm-hmm. I feel like McCartney is like, I'm going to seduce you and it's my job. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and you've said it so well, it's, it's hard to know what to add, but I'd say the only thing I, I can add is to just draw attention again to the something you mentioned anyway, the humor that's there in a lot of what Paul says and does. I mean, you talk about it in terms of um, playfulness, and it is. Yeah. But John gets credit for being the funny Beatle. Yes. And then there's this assumption that Paul is somehow always earnest. Yes, 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 isn't. yes, exactly, exactly. The earnest and the dough-like way that Paul is kind of portrayed. All of that kind of suggests that um, there's something fragile. You know, like he's gifted, but it's just natural. It doesn't suggest a sense of power. And I think Paul always 
does have power because he never allows himself to be acted upon. And she gets that. She does indeed. That's all I have to say about this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next little chunk. Yes. half beetle and half not. He relies on the others to the extent of having considered living in Weybridge with them. I thought maybe we should all be grown up together, he said. I then thought, I don't want to live in Weybridge. <laughs> to thine own self be true. Polonius, Hamlet, his conversation is as peppered as a restoration comedy with a science of this sort that can be disconcerting. O Septed Isle is one he likes, but he relates it to nothing in particular. Stop. Yeah, I've got three things to say about that. <laughs> okay, go you, for it. Okay. Um, well, he is half beetle and half not is something that, you know, clearly deserves a little bit of attention. Mm -hmm. um, if nothing else, it's a spanner in the works of this idea that Paul is the beetliest beetle who ever beetle. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I suppose, Diana, do you think that... Um, Beetle Paul is a skin that he can pull on and cast off at will. I, I mean, I'm a little, I think that's, I'm a bit skeptical of that view as well. I think it's, he, he's not so Machiavellian about his beetle self, but, um, but there's something to that statement, perhaps. What do you think then? What, what would be your answer to that question? Um, well, there's all these references in this article to how alone. Paul is, and I think maybe she overeggs that pudding. Oh, for sure, slightly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like Paul is all alone. Actually, he's living with the Ashes, so <laughs> alone. No, he, he's got a girlfriend and her family and John whenever he wants him. He's exactly. all by himself. <laughs> yeah, Paul is probably the least alone person in the world, but she does she does highlight that for a reason. And it could be because he's alone in this restaurant with her, but I think that she is getting to something and, and yeah. that's an independence. That's right. The fact that um, unlike some other Beatles, perhaps there are parts of Paul's identity that seem untouched or unaffected by Beatledom. Yes. Yes. And so I, I agree. I mean, we have to stop at this. This is one of the most important statements in this article, um, especially to counter every single interview that Paul has given in the past 40 years about loving the Beatles more than anything. You know, Paul is doing that specifically because he was blamed for the breakup. And there is no question that Paul loves the Beatles. But I think that that's where things get confused. I think Paul was able to be a Beatle longer than the rest of them because he figured out how to be a Beatle and how to have a life outside of the Beatles. In some ways, this is so grown up of him. He's half Beatle and half not. 
But I think Paul also protects part of himself as an artist. There's an artist inside of Paul that is true to Paul McCartney, and it's not just Lennon-McCartney. And I think that this is something that potentially hurts John. You know, like, I think this may be a crux of Lennon's issue with him, is that Paul keeps part of himself separate. And part of him, this this part of him is a little bit unreachable. I think that that's very frustrating for John, who always wants to be all in and wants to connect with that, that person that Paul is when they're together and they're writing and they're relaxed. And then there's part of Paul that is like, yeah, but then I want to go off. I suspect that John can be overwhelming and Paul sometimes needs to, you know, to... Uh, detach from ground that. himself or get you know perspective in in other ways as well yes and then he's happy to go and meet john and bring that to john and the beatles and say look isn't this interesting we can build on this you get the sense sometimes in the beatles story that john is his own artist and will collaborate with paul but paul is just there to work with john and i think there is a part of paul that he's protective of, that he needs to refuel. Yeah, it's like a little bit later in this article when Paul gives the example of John's obsession with Bournemouth chocolate. And so he buys a consignment of it and makes himself sick to the point of never wanting to eat it again. Whereas Paul could be quite happy to have a piece or two of Bournemouth chocolate once or twice a day for the rest of his life and wouldn't go through that same process of of going completely over the top with it and then rejecting it entirely. Exactly. Like he intuitively knows that I don't want to just live with the Beatles because we'll get sick of each other. And also I want to do some other things. Um, And I think Paul does himself a disservice by always saying, I'm the only one that wanted to continue with the Beatles. You get the sense that he couldn't live without the Beatles, that they were his whole world. And this is suggesting that they weren't. He loved that part of his world, and then he had a separate part. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like he says, again, in reference to Born with Chocolate, he learns to do things in clumps. He is a great compartmentalizer, which is why he has so many bloody alter egos. You know, there's a certain number of albums with the name Paul McCartney on them. But the number of albums in which Paul has channeled his creativity is far greater than that subset. Yeah. You know, one of John's great hurts was from this period where... um, where Paul does the family way. And, you know, I found a, a little quote that I thought was interesting uh, from Paul. He he gave this interview to a guy named um, Michael Laverdier in uh, 1995, and he's talking about the family way and how this ended up being an issue between him and John. And he said, for me, it was very interesting because it allowed me something of my own. You know, like women these days want to get away from their husbands, get a life of their own. It was a bit of that because with the Beatles, it was a bit like a marriage. It was quite good to just get away to do something of my own. I think if I'd known John was disturbed, I would have just asked him to join me. We could have done that. But there's a sense of he had a need to get away. He liked doing something independent. Not that he wanted to break away from the Beatles. Just the fact that 
he wanted to do some stuff on his own, you know? Just wanted a little healthy balance in his life. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the way Paul talks about the breakup sort of undermines that element of him because it so ties him to needing the Beatles in a way that the others didn't. Yeah, it's like when people talk about um, why couldn't the Beatles have all just had a year off, yeah, yeah, got yeah. their solo albums out of their yeah. system and then come back together. Yeah. And people raise this like these four guys would never have thought of that as a possibility. Yeah, yeah. But of course they did. They talked about that. You can see footage of them in the Get Back sessions talking yes. about that kind of thing. And, you know, if, if Paul had had his way with life, this sort of balanced approach would have led to the Beatles, you know, going away, coming back together at different periods of time. So they're not idiots who never considered the prospect of leaving for a while and coming back again. They were already doing that. Right, right. And I think the Paul McCartney that we see in Get Back is very different than this Paul McCartney, who's very confident. They were all asked, you know, when are the Beatles going to break up, as they were always asked, you know, uh, on tour. And Paul was the one who was like, yeah, you know, it's going to happen. Like John immediately said no, and Paul said, yeah. And he seemed to be accepting of this idea. So at this point, he's confident. By 1969, I think that John has been playing games with Paul, bringing Yoko into the studio. You know, his constant threat of potentially leaving had undermined Paul's confidence. I, I think he did a bit of, of a number on Paul, where Paul um, had become confused and a little bit insecure about the relationship. And so I'm not sure Paul McCartney would have loved a year off at that time because he might have suspected that they wouldn't have come back together. And they also had Klein in the, in the picture. So, you know, but you can see in 1966 when the guys have good relationships that I think absolutely Paul would have said, yeah, let's take eight months off. And they also had Brian at this time. You know, they knew Brian was going to bring them back together, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I suppose all of the stuff we've just said, I think is sort of captured in that statement, he is half Beatle and half not. But the way it's phrased suggests that Paul is somehow uncommitted or... Um, yes, half in. Too tricky or something like that. And I don't yes. think that's really, that, that doesn't quite get at the heart of it. I agree with you, but I think the way that she words it is how John Lennon saw it. And yeah. I think that this is absolutely at the heart of his fear yeah. that starts in this period. Yeah. Is, I suspect it seems to John that Paul is only half in because he still was willing to work together, but he's not living with them. And yeah. he is doing something with George Martin on the side in the, the sphere of music. And all of a sudden he's got a whole new group of friends. Like it seems like Paul is making a step towards potentially not being a Beatle, which again, I don't think Paul McCartney ever wanted to be not a Beatle, but I think he also wanted to develop this other side of himself and Lennon being his partner having huge insecurities with people that he loved. I think that's how John saw it. And, you know, and I think John wasn't the only one who thought that. I think the other Beatles noticed, you know, that Paul was in the city and, you know, it was, it was, I'm sure obvious the three of them are out there and Paul's in the city and, you know, they're all still great friends and incredibly close, but Paul's just doing his own thing away from the gang. And, you know, a few years later, 
it's those three against Paul. I mean, that's part of, I think, his independent spirit. But also, you know, they may have come to some conclusions. Ringo and George may have also come to some conclusions based on Paul's decision to do his own thing and not uh, to choose to be with them, you know? Yeah, it's like the, in the next little bit, he says, um, I thought maybe we should all be grown up together. Yes. He said, I then yes. thought, I don't want to live in Weybridge to thine own self be true. Yeah, again, Paul with Paul sees, you know, living in a in a kind of compound of underground tunnels with the Beatles. <laughs> exactly. It's not synonymous with growing up. That's actually <laughs> a, a mutually contradictory way of thinking about it. Growing up is actually, you know, um, breaking up with your gang and yeah. going to live with your wife and children. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In some ways, they've all decided to be mini 40-year-olds moving to the suburbs together. Um, but the fact that they are doing it together is the not grown-up part of it. It's kind of the sweet part of it. But remember, uh, there was a quote by Marian Faithful who said that Paul went along with John's idea of moving to Greece but that was his idea of a total nightmare scenario. And um, this is the beginning of the the John and, and Paul issues. And I get why John would be insecure because Paul seems to be quite happy in this period. You know, he talked about when I was going through murder, Paul was full of confidence. And this suggests somebody who's at a good point in their life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like he, he, um, he was talking about the composition of the song for no one, which you know is a song I really, really yeah, love. Yeah. Um, and he was trying to explain the song, and he did it in a slightly unusual way. And the interviewer was asking him, "Why don't you write anything like that anymore? That's an amazing song." Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul's response was to say, "You have to understand. When I wrote that song, I was in a very secure position." Mm. Um, and oh, the, the security you can totally see in, in this time period and in this interview. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of trolling Paul a little bit in this this section where she says, to thine own self be true, Polonius, Hamlet, you know, and in brackets she's got his conversation is as peppered as a restoration comedy with the sides of the sort. You know, she kind of trolls them all in their own way. And she does this with Paul with his little Shakespearean uh, asides. But to thine own self be true is something that he has repeated. It's almost like his own mantra. Yeah. Don't you think? Well, yeah. He loves his Hamlet and there's, there's multiple allusions to it in his lyric um, lyrics book. But yes, uh, yeah, I'd say that for Paul, um, that is uh, that is quite a, a motto to live by. Yeah, we well, continually returns to that. But I, I think this is very core. Paul is not willing to go with groupthink. And this is a massive mistake on Alan Klein's part, is A, he didn't realize that Paul is the only person that doesn't go with the gang, that he couldn't get John and then get the gang. It, would, it didn't work that way. Paul was never part of John's gang. Yeah. He had to get Lennon and he had to get McCartney. You know what I mean? And and so that was a massive mistake that Klein made. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he, he knew exactly how to get John. And so something about Alan Klein, he understood John's psyche in quite a profound way. But by God, did he just seem to not get Paul one little bit. Exactly. That is his view of Paul as being kind of 
talented, egocentric, you know, pretty boy. I think he underestimated how savvy and how smart and how Paul is never acted upon. You know, the fact that Paul is independent. I think John hates it and loves it because he can never get Paul under his thumb. I mean, Klein should have read these interviews as research on the Beatles. And based on his error um, on understanding the dynamics of the Beatles and his misreading of Paul McCartney, I definitely don't think he did. And I think this is a mistake that um, authors have made about Paul. You know, some prominent ones have positioned Paul as hero-worshipping John. I think he worships John in the way that John worships Paul. They think that they're the most talented. They think each is the most talented person in the world. But on the other hand, Paul is not going to be part of John's gang ever. You know, he's going to be John's partner and John is going to be Paul's partner. There's a couple of other things. So Paul talks about the fact that he was getting a little bit concerned about John in this period, you know, that he noticed that John wasn't doing well. I think Paul and John sometimes subconsciously write songs to each other. For example, we, we, we've just done the John profile and I don't think John wrote the song Girl about Paul McCartney. I don't think he's like, I'm writing a song about Paul McCartney, I'm gonna call it Girl. But when you look at the song Girl, he seems to be actually describing Paul McCartney. You know, somebody who makes him work all the time, who never actually compliments him, who came to stay, you know, that he can never actually leave. You know, it's pretty specific for being this ultimate woman, you know? And I don't think Paul McCartney meant to write here, there, and everywhere to John Lennon. It doesn't sound like a song that's written to John Lennon at all. I think it's probably written to... Um, Jane Asher, but there's something between John and Paul about that song that they refer to. Remember, we talked about it. It's in Instant Karma. Yeah. And I wonder if an element, if either John took that to be about himself or there's an element of that song where John liked the notion of Paul saying, if she's beside me, I need never care. You know, there's an element of, I feel strong with this person around me. I wonder if there's an element of that song that was subconsciously to reassure John. Hmm. Yeah, watching her eyes and hoping I'm always there, it does seem reflective of the the way Lennon and McCartney would look at each other and find this sort of uh, security between them in, in that act. Yes, if we look at Jealous Guy, John says specifically, I was trying to catch your eyes. Yeah. He doesn't say trying to catch your eye, which would be your attention. He says eyes. That's the Paul and John thing. I was trying to do our eyes thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We know based on Paul's recollections that uh, he recalls writing it at John's house before John got up and that he has said John just loved it. Um, and so... Who knows? Maybe mm -hmm. this song is meaningful because John loved it, complimented Paul that that was a particularly nice session. You know, mm -hmm. it was just a particularly warm exchange. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, this song seems to hold some kind of significance for the two of them. Uh, maybe there was a couple of lines that Paul threw in for John that, you know, reassured John. Because as we'll discuss in the John episode, this was a time when John was very very aware 
that Paul was out there doing all kinds of things without him based on things that he said uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. one more thought about the half Beatles half not or this you know the impression that he gives that he's not fully invested or fully engaged I was thinking about this and I'm wondering if the problem is that his creative mind is always going you know I recalled this quote and I thought it was insightful and potentially relevant it stuck with me it's by Robert Freeman he traveled with the Beatles and this is what he said about Paul Paul liked to keep his options open and this applied to friendship just when you thought you were getting to know him to feel a commitment from him, he slipped behind a smiling mask. Finally, I came to accept this aspect of his nature. And we worked together, traveled together in a relaxed fashion, but never with any developed contact. Paul had a real appetite for life, an exuberant optimism, and a buoyant enthusiasm that was admirable, even if at times it overwhelmed his skeptical partner, John. He lived in his head to create music, or lived to create music in his head. This process or activity could account for a certain distance in his contact with people, however pleasant and engaging he might appear. And I thought that might be a clue to the half beetle, half nod as well. You know, it could simply be that Paul is always thinking about music. A lot of people say this about Paul, that he's lovely, but they feel like they can't connect. And there's mm -hmm. part of Paul that's keeping himself separate. And that could be a protective nature. You know, Paul got hurt when his mom died. Maybe he protects himself. But it could also be that he's a genius musician and he's always got an imagination and music that's going. And, and that's just going at the same time, too. Yeah. And once again, I don't think it makes him inauthentic as a no. human being. Like the implication to John or to someone who might be a bit more jealous by nature might be, uh, if Paul's only half with me, that means he must have other relationships yes. that he's more committed yes. to. But I don't think that that's true. It's, it's the case that Paul is equally sort of self-contained in potentially all other relationships. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I think if pressed, you know, Paul would be like, you are my most important relationship. I think this was a problem this time. Jane wanted him to say that. And John wanted him to say that. And with Cynthia, John had an easier situation. She was like, I accept that Paul's the most important person to you. She says that basically in the Hunter article, you know, that she knows she can't compete. And I think at this point, Jane's still like, I need to be number one. And, you know, but I think that if Paul could have expressed himself better to John, he would have said, you never have to worry. I will always be there. You know, I always want to be your partner. Just let me go and have some fun or let me go and sit in my mind for a while. It's not an inauthenticity or a lack of loyalty. He needs space. Yeah. If you want evidence of the fact that Paul remains very loyal and committed yes. to his relationship with John and his collaboration with John. Look at the fact that for, for 50 plus years, he's, he has 
stoutly refused to enter into anything like the same kind of collaboration with anyone else. That's right. That's right. I wish John Lennon could have known that. I think that, yeah. would, have, that would have changed everything. That would have solved everything. That would have solved everything because I think 90% of what happened after this is based on John's own insecurity. And I think that when Paul looks back, sometimes he talks about John so loving, lovingly and expresses himself in the ways that he wished he could have, you know, because he understands that. But anyways, okay, that's yeah. all I have to say about this section. All right, I'll move on and so Paul lives alone in London. <laughs> again, Paul is an island. He's got family coming down from Liverpool like every week. Yes. Paul is an island all by himself. Um, sorry, I'll carry on. I love the look of London, he said. He goes to the pictures, does the Times crossword, drives himself around in his minis or his Aston Martin DB6, goes shopping, keeps appointments, finds out what he wants to know. Stop. He tolerates. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah I, I do think we should discuss her, her point because she portrays a man who's very busy, a man about town doing interesting things on his own. But as you said, it's so misrepresentative. He does live with a boisterous, intellectual, warm family, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Not only does he live with his girlfriend and her family, he's writing songs for her brother, and all of his brother's friends have become his friends. He's also got another house, and his own family surrounds him. So it's just interesting that she chooses to portray him this way. And I don't know if it's out of respect for the Ashers or whether there's just something very independent, whether that's her view of Paul. You know what I mean? Because it's so prevalent throughout this entire article. It almost cuts a lonely figure. Yeah, and and I don't think that's accurate. Maybe she didn't intend to do that, but it's certainly the effect of the article. Maybe Paul's alone in the group of the Beatles. And that's what she's calling out, that the three are a group and Paul is, you know, this action figure flitting about town, you know, he's very self-contained. Maybe she's suggesting that. Yeah, I think, I think so. I get the sense that at this time, Paul really thinks of himself as the hero of his own story, you know, that oh, yeah. he has these little fantasies, like I'm going to go to Paris and be a writer, which he does six months later. Yeah, it's like um, he's aware of the fact that the other Beatles doing this dress-up box version yes. of adult life in Weybridge. And he recognizes it for the fantasy that it is. But yes. he thinks, as long as we're going to be living out fantasies, I've got better ones that I want to live out. For sure. He's like, I'm going to live out the rock star fantasy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I read the paragraph here about Paul flitting around London. And to me, it makes him seem like an arty James Bond. It does. That's <laughs> hilarious. This is exactly what Paul is. He is kind of a cultural superhero at this time. Yeah, totally. I love this next bit and just yeah. this two line okay. um, section on its own. He tolerates a minimum of fuss. Chauffeurs and cars with black windows. He hates black windows. I'm thinking, he said tartly, of getting a bicycle with black windows. I mean, I love that. That's such a, a, a withering way of, uh, a sort of caustic way of making fun of the, the black window version of celebrity culture. 
Um, but also it's a direct contrast to the John Lennon interview. John sealed in his coffin-like Rolls Royce with its black windows. And Maureen Cleave, I think, is probably choosing this quote because she knows just how oh, different absolutely, it is absolutely. to John's. So he's doing his interview probably a week or two after John's has come out. So he's completely trolling his partner with this. And it's also true to Paul. You know, this actually speaks to the two of them. Paul loves his bicycle and buses. And John does like to be imperious. And he likes certain things around him that reflect this, that I'm special, you know? Now, Paul does actually drive a super fancy Aston Martin. So it's not like Paul doesn't enjoy some fancy things. So I think what Paul is reacting to, like the black window comment, he didn't say, I hate fancy cars. I think he hates being elevated and separated from people. Don't you think? Yeah, that's right. I think um, John's desire to have black windows is probably born from a desire to have that kind of bubble-like privacy within his car. It's to keep other people out, basically. Um, But Maureen Cleave seems to recognize that it also functions to keep John sealed in in a way that makes him a little bit more paranoid and um, a little bit more lonely and isolated. Um, And I think she recognizes that in refusing the black windows, Paul is essentially less of a prisoner of his own material success. That's right. So obviously this is this is Paul trolling John. And I just want to point out that Paul is completely confident in trolling John. You know what I mean? Like he's not at all worried about John being angry. He's putting no. this in the paper. It makes me laugh how close they must be for Paul to make fun of him publicly like a week later in his profile. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, it is the kind of joke you can have at your best friend's expense. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Woman, do you love me? Woman, if you need me, then believe me, I need you to be my woman. Woman, do you love me? He enjoys moving without detection. He arranges to get in and out of the country, loves disguises, relishes writing songs under the pseudonym of one Bernard Webb, student in Paris. Skiing recently, a photographer came to him and said, you are Paul McCartney. Me? Said Paul with the aforementioned expression on his face. And the man went away. It is possible his much publicized courtship of Miss Jane Asher that has made him so secretive. If anybody gets away with a quiet wedding, it will be Paul. Stop it. the least quiet wedding of all of them. <laughs> yeah, cut to an image of Paul and Linda surrounded by 10,000 fans. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, he tried. He tried. <laughs> but, yes. uh, you know, it's incredible reading through this, going through it in detail, how Paul really has not changed. You know, he loves his pseudonyms. It makes me think of Percy Thrill's Thrillington, how he loves his secret songs. There's just this part of Paul that loves to surprise people and relishes that kind of playfulness, the unexpectedness, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, disguises, relishes, writing songs under the Bernard Webb is a funny one where, you know, the, the story that I heard is that um, in this case, the pseudonym was an experiment to see if if the song didn't have the golden That's Lennon right. McCartney name attached yeah. to it, would it be as successful? And of course it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, but it did pretty well. It was the yeah, song. I, was... I think it's a great song. I love the song, Woman. I well, think Paul really... thinks it's a great song because obviously he's still singing it in Get Back, you know? Yeah. And I think it it influenced John's song, Woman. They had that same woman. Yep. Yeah, I think the, whether or not it was intentional, that, that John is clearly influenced by it. Actually, in my interview with Michael Penn, he talked about the melody of uh, John's version of Woman and how it was uh, suspiciously close to here, there, and everywhere. So there you go. Another connection for you. would have been a great novelist because he seems to like to inhabit different personas. You would think that somebody who is such a good mimic and who can sort of disguise himself so effectively would be a good actor. <laughs> I was literally <laughs> just thinking that and I, I actually stopped myself because he is so bad. Yeah. Um... <laughs> And just for any listeners' benefit who don't realize, I, I can say skiing recently is almost certainly a reference to Paul and Jane's skiing holiday in Klosters, Switzerland, just a little bit before this article was uh, was written. So Duncan has written a piece about For No One, and we are going to discuss it on a Hidden Gems episode. But you know what? Since we are talking about Jane, it made me think of how much he's learned from Jane. You know, because there's accounts of fans overhearing Jane say that fans' love for you is not the same as my love. It's not real. You know, I think from an early age, Paul McCartney lived with somebody who had been famous all her life. And I suspect that really influenced how Paul handled fame. She's somebody who seems to have been very determined to get on with her life and not act like a star. You know, and so Paul's ability to move through London and, and carry his fame in the way that he does was probably largely l learned from Jane. Mm, Don't you think? No, I think that's a great observation. It never occurred to me before, but when now that you say it, I think that's quite true. Yeah. Jane's only mentioned a couple of times in this, but I think that this is interesting. She says, it is possibly his much publicized courtship of Miss Jane Asher that has made him so secretive. If anybody gets away with a quiet wedding, it will be Paul. So she mentions Jane. She's alluding to the fact that they are probably going to get married. 
they've just gone on a ski holiday, which is when he writes um, for no one, which obviously suggests that they are going through some ups and downs. Because if you look at Paul's songs from this album and the last one, there's a lot that seem to be at least focused on Jane and the state of their relationship, you know? Yeah. I'm looking through you. Um, you won't see me. We can work yeah. it out. We can work it out. Yeah, they're up and down and up and down. There's basically two buckets of songs. There is dealing with Jane, the highs and lows of Jane Asher, the, the breaking up and making up and she won't see him and now she will see him and now he wants her everywhere. And then there's the part of Paul that's just exuberant about life. I've interviewed um, Leslie Cavendish and Peter Asher, and I've talked to Barry Miles. All three of them said that Paul was crazy about Jane. Now, he was um, cheating on Jane when she was not there, but I think that's partly because she was not there. But if we're talking about Paul at this period, that he's on a real high, he's kind of the Prince of London, he's got this uh, relationship. But I think that even if they are volatile at this time, I think that he is very... um, into her you know yeah i mean the way this is phrased seems to assume that paul and jane's marriage is an inevitability exactly exactly so without her saying it she is suggesting this and you know there's some interviews with paul when he talks about the fact that he and jane were looking for a house and the first house they wanted to buy they found out was too expensive. You know, this was years later. He was talking about, we weren't as rich as we wanted. And he said, when Jane and I were looking for our house, and that was a bit of a slip up, I think, on his part, because he was clearly talking about them looking for their house. And he said, we found one that we loved, but I was told it was too expensive for us. So then we found Cavendish. And this is the point where he and Jane are having to readjust their relationship because she's moving in with him. So it's their house, but she's also not giving up acting. I think Paul was crazy about Jane the whole time. And I think she was crazy about him. After they broke up, she only gave a couple of small interviews and she said, like, we really loved each other, but we couldn't make each other happy. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way. Run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone We can work it out, we can work it out Think of what you're saying You can get it wrong and still you think that it's alright Think of what I'm saying We can work it out and get it straight I'll say goodnight We can work it out, we can work it out Life is very short You know, as I've said a few times on this podcast, I've shared emails with um, Miles and I asked him about Jane and um, and I had asked him about the fact that her presence had been toned down in Paul's book. And he said, when I once wrote that Paul asked me to tone down the references to Jane in many years from now, that was because Linda had cancer and Paul really did not want to launch a book about the Paul and Jane love story when Linda was dying. It was not that he didn't love Jane. He really did. Jane won't talk about him because she wanted to make a clean break and a new career and knew if she made even one mention, that would lead to hundreds more articles and interviews. So no mention at all, ever. And it worked. 
In the end, the press realized she was never going to spill the beans. I think they had a tempestuous relationship that mirrored the times. It was the 60s and everyone's attitudes and morals were in a state of change. But I often saw them together at my place or theirs in Cavendish Avenue for dinner. And it was a warm and very loving relationship. Also, he was a rock star and you would not believe how many girls and women came on to him whenever he ventured out into public, which I laughed at, by the way. I was like, yeah, I imagine that, Miles. (laughs) But anyways... Then he goes on and he says, the role of women was also changing. This was pre-women's liberation, which didn't really become part of the national debate until 1971-72. So Paul and Jane had disagreements over her working, at least her working out of town. Another problem was that Jane is very intelligent and comes from a very intellectual family. So she had little time for many of the rock and rollers who were part of Paul's life. She was not into drugs and her mother taught classical music. He was old-fashioned, and a part of him, the part of him that was like his dad, thought her place should be at his side, and Jane didn't go along with that. She wanted to continue with her career, and that was a problem between them. But then he says that when they broke up, that Paul was shell-shocked and going through a tough time. So I just wanted to reinforce the fact that Paul and Jane's relationship was deep, but was also tempestuous. I agree. Your day breaks, your mind aches, you find that all linger on when she no longer needs you she wakes up she makes up she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry she no longer needs you and in her eyes you see nothing no sign of love behind the tears cried for no one a love that should have lasted years you want her, you need her, and yet you don't believe her when she says... At the moment, he is on a program of self-improvement that he is embarrassed to discuss. But his mind, by all accounts, is in a ferment. I don't want to sound like Jonathan Miller going on, he said, but I'm trying to cram everything in, all the things I've missed. People are saying things and painting things and writing things and composing things that are great, but I must know what people are doing. Anything about that or shall I carry on? Do you have any comments about that? I think it's interesting that both John and Paul reference beyond the fringe in their respective interviews. So John does it by uh, referencing a Peter Cook line. um, I could have been a judge, but I never had the Latin. Paul does it by mentioning Jonathan Miller, who was also in that show. So again, it's just sort of another another subtle point of connection between them, that they both represent the, the same a cultural reference point in their interviews. Yes, interesting, think, yeah. Yeah, the most interesting thing is this sort of feverish need he has to be painting things, writing things, composing things, and I have to be aware of everything that yes. everyone yes. is doing. Yes, yes, as opposed to, say, John, who is most interested in what he is doing, <laughs> or he and Paul are doing. You know, it's interesting because Paul is at the top in London. He's a Beatle. And yet he's like, now I must know what everybody else is doing. And, you know, it, it, it reflects such a curiosity. I think this piece reflects how impacted he was by the Ashers as well. You know, that Paul was just exposed to so much through them that the other Beatles really wouldn't have had access to. You know, he talks about there being like word games at dinner and people stopping by. This is where Paul met 
Miles, uh, Barry Miles and all of Peter Asher's friends. And I just think that Paul with the Ashers was exposed to the whole London scene. And so he knows there's stuff going on. I mean, I think all the Beatles had their antennas out and were interested in things, but I think it was just literally in Paul's face and being so ambitious and so curious and driven and competitive. You know, Paul now at this point, now that he's got time, it's like he's got to catch up on the rest of his life because he's been so focused on making it. Remember John said in his piece that we've always been so focused on being the Beatles. Now we can finally be. I feel like Paul's like, I can actually look up and learn everything else. And 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 there's so much going on that I don't know about. Yeah, it's like um, Paul seems to be the most acutely aware that uh, as much as the Beatles are, are riding the crest of a particular wave at that moment, um, Paul is the most aware of the wave. He's aware that, you know, this thing called swinging 60s is happening. Perhaps it was hard to be um, acutely aware of it if you were right in the middle of it. That's an excellent and important point. You know, later on, John Lennon would write an angry letter to Paul just saying, you're not so self-centered to think that we let it. And I don't think Paul was. I think that Paul, in this article, is saying, I know that there's so much exciting stuff going on. He may think we're the best in our area, but I want to absorb it and then get better at what I'm doing. You know what I mean? So I think that that's a great point that Paul recognizes that they are part of something exciting. Um, Again, the differences between John and Paul, you know, with the Pete Townsend quote where John walks in and says, I'm John Lennon and you aren't. And everybody settles down and has a good time. Whereas Paul wants to meet other movers and shakers. And he's like, oh, I'm Paul, but we're on the same level. And then confuses everybody because they're like, but you're a beetle and I'm not, you know. But I think that this is getting at that sense that he has respect and regard and interest in other things that are going on. Yeah, totally. It's interesting that he the, ne- the next bit talks about Paul's music lessons, isn't it? It is. Um, he has a music lesson a week from a composer who is by no means thick, he said <laughs> admiringly. At school, I never got further than the six-finger exercise, satirical joke, and that the other day I felt like an old person sitting there saying, I wish I'd learned to read music. So I started to learn. he's always going on about how he never bothered to learn how to read music properly, but this tells a slightly different story. It's, it's not the whole truth. (laughs) Yeah. Can you read the next sentence? Yeah, sure. One of the first bits of music he wrote down was something for his girlfriend, Jane, to play on her classical guitar. Stop. Yes. I mean, so Paul can write well enough to write out something for Jane. And and this was mentioned in another article on Jane, I think, about her learning a piece that was written to her by her boyfriend. But um, obviously, he knows enough to write something down. So he did learn something, you know? Yeah, it's like um, sometimes Paul will... Um... <sighs> As as sharp as he is, he won't reveal the full extent of that sharpness. He's quite happy to appear to be, um, I don't know, um, more naive or or less learned than he actually is. Oh, I I think that's Paul's protective cloak, is to be the normal guy or to be a little ditzy sometimes. 
you know, or he'll put himself down. You know, I never got further than the six finger exercise, which I know was a joke that I don't get because it seems to be a British joke. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that Paul will do because he's so smart and because I think there is a benefit to maybe people underestimating. I don't know. He has also said that he said, sometimes I say these things and I expect people know it's not true. But I think maybe he is um, overestimating people. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, especially in the printed word, things yes. that are said in, in an ironic way come across much more earnestly than they're meant. They sound like pronouncements from the heart, whereas you just yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. talking the shit. Exactly. So this suggests that he was proficient to some extent or proficient enough to write out a a basic song for Jane to play. And so that's corroborated by another article. So this is what I suspect is he had because he has talked about having these lessons and then abandoned them. I think he learned a little bit. But, you know, George Martin always said that one of the reasons you guys are so creative is because you never learned the rules. I suspect that Paul got superstitious or concerned at some point, like, what if I learn too much and I lose my creativity? I can see that happening. There seemed to have been some superstition around learning too much. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit like um, Paul refusing to give himself over completely to the Donovan finger-picking style, but just kind of observing from a distance and then figuring out his own version of that thing, like distance, and then figuring out his own version of that thing, like he'll dip his toe in the water of being able to read music, but just as much as he thinks it can feed my existing creativity. (laughs) Exactly. I think there is a desire not to think. You know, as I've talked about the artists inside, that sometimes it seems unknown to Paul, but Paul almost seems to like to keep it that way, wants to keep the mystery of his abilities a mystery because when he doesn't think it just comes out, you know? Yeah, that's right. To to sit there and um, uh, to be too clinical in your approach to it would be, uh, I suppose, for the, the magic to evaporate, or he's, he's suspicious that that might happen. Exactly, exactly. He wants to keep the magic magic and a mystery yeah. because it keeps coming out. So, you know, yeah. may as well keep going with a good thing. That's right. The next little bit begins, he is fascinated by the work of the French playwright, Alfred Jarry, and keeps urging Brian Epstein to stage them here. He would like to paint, he would like to write. Indeed, heaven knows what he is painting and writing and in what disguise at this very moment. <laughs> I like how, how similar the portrait of this article generally, but of this paragraph in particular is to the portrait of Paul that emerges from Many, many years this, from now yeah it's just yeah. so similar and it, yes. and it suggests that paul is not being um meretricious in the painting of that portrait you know 30 years later that it's actually quite an accurate portrait exactly you know that is always seen as a rebuttal to the fact that he wasn't the arty one and that he is 
elevating his interest in the scene or exaggerating his his interest in the scene. And I love the fact that this is an artifact. This is evidence from this time. We've got Paul talking yeah. about it, about all of these things. Obviously, he's been talking about these to Maureen Cleave because she is repeating them here, you know? And uh, yeah, I think that anybody who doesn't believe in the portrait that is painted in many years from now only needs to read this and to see how incredibly similar they are. And, you know, I, I shared a little bit um, about what Miles had said to me, but I thought I would share this too. Um, I said, uh, you know, I asked him what he thought about Paul and he said, he said that at first he was like, look, I was really, really into the jazz scene, not into pop. So I didn't really know who Paul was. He was like, of course I knew who the Beatles were, but I didn't even know what instrument Paul played. And so he met him through uh, Peter Asher. And then he said, um, and this is, I'm quoting, I liked Paul immediately. He was inquisitive and wanted to know about everything, jazz, avant-garde, art, electronic music, books, the beat generation, new wave films, all the things I was interested in. We were about the same age. He's a year older than me. So we had similar experiences at school, listened to the same radio shows, TV shows, etc. I had no idea he was so famous, in fact which is weird, by the way. Um, the sort of thing he liked was most to sit around in Mrs. Asher's sitting room and tell stories about Liverpool, the eccentrics, the buses, and the humor, especially the Liverpool humor. Ken Dodd, Arthur Askey, a whole load of British comments come from there. Peter Asher and Betsy were often there as well. And of course, so was Jane. And sometimes Mrs. Asher was there as well. I liked him a lot. He was very generous, insisting on always paying no matter where we went, movies, nightclubs, restaurants, but never making a big deal of it. I think he became more parsimonious later in life when he saw people ripping him off. There was a period when I saw him maybe two to three times a week just to hang out. We smoked pot together as well, of course. He was very attracted to the London underground or counterculture scene and was pleased to have connected to it through me. He went to the UFO club, supported International Times financially from time to time, even helped lay out some of the ads for the paper one time. He was, like me, basically an old beatnik in the process of transforming into an old hippie. It was his and John's liking for Bohemia that really set the Beatles apart from many of the other bands. And it was also the reason that the press didn't really understand them. They weren't just in it for the money and the fame like many other 60s bands. It was to do with art and changing society. Or it had become that way by 1965 when I first met them. And so, you know, even today, Miles basically repeating what is in the paragraph by Maureen that is in his book. I mean, it's really consistent, Paul's curiosity. You know, she didn't pick up on this, but I think this is one of Paul's defining traits is his curiosity, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. That's what I, uh, I was alluding to right at the start of the conversation when I said what seems like innocence yes. or naivete is actually really the, the face that his curiosity wears. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I also would say that there is an innocence to his belief yeah. in the goodness of people. And so we have to disagree with Maureen in saying it gives nothing away or, you know, is no clue. It is some clue, but it's only part of the story. Yeah, yeah. She's right to say he's not just That's right. the pretty boy. <laughs> Exactly. He's not the pretty boy. And it's so interesting, again, that she called attention to that right away, because it would be interesting to know how much 
harm that idea of Paul being the cute one or the pretty one did to his intellectual standing. Because she doesn't refer to it at all here. She doesn't refer to his looks other than to say that he's well kept, although Leslie Cavendish completely disagreed with that. He said when he met Paul, like his hair was crazy and unkempt. But I guess in public when he's with her, it is. What I liked about this was he again confirms that Paul was generous and curious and he was bohemian. They weren't just in it for the money and fame like many other 60s bands. It was to do with art and changing society. I think a lot of people would assume this about John, but that's true of Paul too, you know, and I think it comes out with Paul's view of Apple, his crazy view of what we can do with Apple. But I think that that is not always associated with Paul, how bohemian, how much he wanted to change society too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm reassured by the fact that this document of Paul's arty leanings exists yeah. in 1966. So that, as you say, the, the portrait of him that emerges from many years from now isn't just an overcorrection to exactly. the 1970s depositioning of Paul. That's right. That's right. And you know what I was thinking about, like uh, for the John episode, I was thinking, what is John writing at the time? And then I was thinking about the Paul and, you know, it's his songs, uh, other than the ones where he's in arguments with Jane Asher or complaining about Jane Asher or trying to make up with Jane Asher. The other ones are all about the excitement of life, like Good Day Sunshine, Got to Get You Into My Life. There's just such an exuberance at that time. There is. And there's also, uh, you can hear the artistic ambition, the fact that he, he needs to be so aware of what all these other people are doing because he's so keen to stretch himself um, compositionally, creatively, musically. And I hear that probably on Revolver as much as anywhere else, that he as a composer is trying to, to break new ground, at least for him. But yes. Paul as a composer is really pushing at all of his own sort of boundaries or comfort zones a lot more in Revolver. It's a fabulous point because you're talking about his artistic ambition and the fact that that is incorporated into his work and then also the, the larger Beatles work. And that kind of ties to what I was saying at the beginning, that he's always going out in the world and learning and bringing stuff back. It's like Paul didn't come to London and say, I am a Beatle. He's so active. There's just a sense of he's a player. He's predatory almost in, in terms of his absorption of the cultural scene, you know? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I do agree with you. He sees no limit to his own possibilities. Ideally speaking, he would like to know everything. I vaguely mind people knowing anything I don't know, he said. <laughs> yes, I see what you mean about the competitiveness, the slightly predatory, acquisitive approach to knowledge or, or um, skill or whatever. Um, this, it's odd in that it's also it's slightly suspicious of pockets of knowledge or experience that, that he isn't part of. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Paul had FOMO in 1966. But this also made me laugh because it reminded me of Get Back when he said, the only thing stopping yourself is yourself. Yeah, vaguely. 
Yeah. So he, he has lots of these little sayings. So I think he sees this for himself, but also for people. Remember how he was trying to tell the kid that all the songs were in the piano. I think he's just very optimistic that there's stuff out there to be learned if you're willing to, you know? Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it is part of that's whatever version of innocence applies to Paul McCartney, the that's where it kind of it connects to as well, I think. Actually, and this makes me think of, you know, in the um, the earlier statement where he talks about um, he didn't want to be an old person going on. That reminds me of Get Back To. Yeah, yeah, when, he, yeah. when he's trying to aid the monster. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that's one of Paul's voices. So that made me laugh when I read that. Oh, he was doing that in 66, too. Talk about the fucking past. Well, like old age pensioners. Remember the days when we used to rock? What's fascinating to me about Paul is he retains things so incredible. For a guy that has smoked the amount of pot, it is shocking to me how much his brain retains. You know, like he did the the Ubujubu kind of radio series in in the 90s. Like he seems to have absorbed and and retained a lot of this because he refers to a a lot in his work going forward, you know? And this is a relatively short amount of time. Like Paul's college education was crammed into about a year, you know, and he, he pretty well did a PhD in the liberal arts in this time. And it's just amazing to me how much it's, it stayed with him. Um, but things like, um, she makes the point, he would like to paint, he would like to write. Indeed, heaven knows what he is painting and writing and in what disguise at this very moment. He sees no limit to his own possibilities. Ideally speaking, he would like to know everything. So what I found really interesting, and I, I think is really important, is that she gets that he would like to paint, he would like to write. And, you know, so that's Paul putting it out there. And that's the type of thing Paul will say that, oh, someday I'm going to do this. And Maureen Cleave is so sharp that she knows perfectly well that he is actually doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's so right to say um, any of this stuff could potentially be happening at the point in time at which we're having this discussion. The same is true in 2022. Like if it turned out that there was another secret project and another... Exactly, exactly. It wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Exactly. Like she... She predates the the firemen, the, um, you know, all of his pseudonyms, the fact that he's doing this work. He's just not telling us about it, you know? Mm. And this, I think it's this, his reticence to announce that he's doing this, I think is actually an important story with Paul McCartney. You know, he met John when he was at the Liverpool Institute, and he's talked a lot about the fact that he loved to do art and, you know, won awards doing art at the Liverpool Institute. So he was an artist even when he was young. He was already writing songs before he met John. So there was this artistic soul in Paul from day one. And then he meets John, and John is at the Art Institute. And it seems to have given Paul a hang-up about his ability to be the artist and to be the writer. Because even though he was probably writing more music and doing more music before he met John, those were kind of John's things. And I suspect it always created a little bit of a reticence, a, um, you know, there seems to be a hesitation to announce himself or to claim that title for himself. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. I think maybe if 
if Paul says, I would like to be able to paint or I'd like to be able to write, that's Paulese for I'm already doing these things and I'm slightly nervous about admitting that. So I'm framing it as something I would like to do. Do you know what I mean? Like he's. I, I do. I do. That is Paulie's. For... way of admitting something. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and my point is, is that because these, that was kind of John's domain, like Paul was the expert in music and he was a better, you know, better musician than John. John kind of said, well, I already had the Daily Howl and I'm in the art college. And, and Stuart Sutcliffe being such a good artist made Paul maybe step back a little bit in terms of leading with these, maybe out of difference for John's, you know, a skill that John had. And I talked to Chris Salovich and he said, yeah, it didn't matter the fact that Paul was already a brilliant artist and could have gone to an art school. The fact that John did kind of gave him a halo of being an artist, you know? And I think that probably made Paul a little bit inhibited. Hmm. In yeah, maybe in the same way that John would later admit to being a bit inhibited when trying to write something uh, overtly melodic. Exactly. It's a clear strength for Paul. So I think it, it probably works both ways for both of them. Exactly, exactly. I think this is an important point during this period that this plays into um, an issue that may be developing between John and Paul in this period. Um, you know, in the John episode, this is unfortunately going to come out before the John episode, just due to Paul's birthday. But in the John episode, we talked about how there's a little bit of a fracture between John and Paul because Paul is in London, away from the gang uh, in Weybridge. And we just talked about why Paul might have wanted this. But I, I think that Paul wanted some space to flourish as an artist. And, you know, I think these were important parts to Paul that he potentially felt like he didn't have the space to move into with John. You know, he knows he has to be careful with John and John's ego and, you know, the rules and the roles that they're in and the Beatles. And so potentially having room to explore this on his own was a way for him to hone some of these skills. And I think that some of his friendships, like Robert Frazier, for example, I think is a really important friendship and a very important story. Like it's an important relationship that has gone unexplored in the Beatles story because he was apparently one of Paul's best friends for the next couple of years and stayed an important friend for Paul for the rest of his life. And I think why he's so important was that Robert basically helped Paul explore the art scene on his own, away from the Beatles and treated Paul like an artist. You know, like when somebody asked Robert to describe Paul much later, he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, he is a rare and very beautiful thing, a true artist. And so I think that Robert saw the genius artist in Paul and didn't limit it just to music. You know, he took him to Paris and, and allowed him to explore his interest in, in art and buying art and, you know, taught him about that. And I think it just allowed a different part of Paul to flourish and grow. And I suspect his closeness with Robert Frazier was potentially concerning to John, you know, Paul's very yeah. close to Barry Miles and Robert Frazier and Tara Brown. You know, he takes Tara to Liverpool over Christmas and New Year's and gets in his accident with 
uh, Tara Brown maybe a couple months before this interview. So Paul's developing these close relationships with other males in his life that I think are influential. And that might have scared John or, you know, been intimidating or made him insecure because he and Paul are the ultimate, you know, they talked about being the marriage, the creative partnership. And I don't think it meant that Paul was going to leave or love John any less, but it might have appeared that way to John. Yeah, I think that it points to a key difference between Paul and John. When there's an opportunity for something that has a great deal of risk associated with it or makes them feel vulnerable, like, say, taking LSD, yep. John's instinct is to want to do that with the person he's closest to. So it, it's, it, can, it can take place in a... In, a, in an environment that he feels most comfortable in. I can yep. totally understand that. Whereas Paul's approach, and this would apply to both LSD with Tara Brown, and also these forays into the avant-garde art and music world, is to go outside of the Beatles space and to create this kind of little pocket of experimentation for it, so that he doesn't have to risk the high stakes relationship of the Beatles with that experimentation. Very, very different approach. Okay. I agree. I'm just going to offer a different perspective, which is that maybe John is so consuming that it never allowed Paul this, like, you know, John needs Paul's attention. John needs everybody's attention. I do agree with you probably on the LSD issue. I think with the art issue, I think that, can you imagine Paul saying to John, you know what, let's explore the art scene. Like Paul did drag John to some of these things, but do you think that John would have ever said, yes, Paul, let's see what you can do as an artist. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if he would support Paul in this way. Like Paul almost needed somebody else. Like, in the art sphere, I think that's what Stuart did for John. You know, so often Stuart is, uh, you know, conflated in terms of the Lennon and McCartney relationship. And I personally think that's total bullshit. They had a totally different relationship. You know, John wasn't competitive with Stuart. Stuart, he respected as an artist and John wanted to be an artist like him. But, you know, John's genius is in writing and music and his partner in that is Paul and they're competitive and they have a chemistry. And so, you know, and that, that competitiveness and that mutual respect and love of each other just created an entirely different chemistry. I don't think that Stuart and John had any kind of competitiveness because they were on different paths, you know? And so John kind of had somebody to lead him and Yoko sort of is that too. They're complementary. Whereas Paul and John, everything they do is like, riddled with competition. And so I feel like for Paul to stretch into some of these spaces that he needed people like a Robert Frazier, who he said that he met Robert and he liked him, but he, there was an interesting quote, I think it's in many years from now, or it might be in the Robert Frazier book where he says that he met him and, you know, it was fine. He liked him. But then one day he overheard him talking about his parents and he was so blatantly warm about, uh, I'm just paraphrasing, but I believe this is what he said. He was so warm about his parents that it kind of endeared him to Paul. And he felt like he could be open with him in a way that I think he couldn't be with John. Like he, he said something like, I felt like I could be open about my parents with him or my dad in a way that I couldn't be with the Beatles 
which is actually a huge statement. And again, I would love to explore this relationship a little bit more in the future. But I thought that was interesting that he felt safe and he specifically said he felt he could talk about his family with Robert in a way that he couldn't. So it makes me feel like Paul felt like he could be vulnerable or himself in a way with Robert, you know? Mm. Yeah, the, um, John and Paul's attitude to family life is a whole can of worms. To it is. Point. But look, I won't deny that it is pretty fundamental to their relationship. It's one of the elephants in the room of, of their entire relationship, I think. That's right, because I think that, you know, this is a constant tension between them is I think there's a jealousy between John and Paul's attachment to his family, you know, and it's interesting that he doesn't feel like he can really talk about it that much with John, because I think John, for John, the Beatles is his family, yeah. you know, and so Paul's got a little bit of this pull and apparently he doesn't have it with, with Robert. And so I think Robert and Tara and Barry all gave Paul the freedom to explore as an artist on his own. And it wasn't to go away from John. I think that's potentially where there was some tension. I don't think it was ever to leave. I think it was just for his own artistic and intellectual expansion and curiosity and to bring back, I think it was to be a great addition to the Beatles. Like I think Paul always thought he was doing it for the benefit of the Beatles in some ways, I often talk about John going off with Yoko and bringing her in so that he is a better competitor to Paul. I believe they are both doing that. And I do think it's interesting that a year and a half after Paul gets really into the avant-garde, all of a sudden John is like romantically linked to somebody in the avant-garde, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like, I, I think the rivalry the comparison between these two men is so important. And so, so often when I'm talking about 69, I'll say that I think John is using Yoko to strengthen himself to be a better competitor against Paul. Not only, I think there's the romantic side too, but I think Paul is also doing this too. He's strengthening himself. And I think that that's always a measure to bring it to the Beatles, but also because he believes John is so good too. And, and he said that since then, he was worried about John in this period. So he's upping his game and he's inviting John. He wants always John to be upping his game too, you know? Yeah, I do. I, I agree. I don't think it's a case of um, Paul uh, going off in a, in a clandestine way to create something that's going to be um, a spanner in the works of the Beatles. He wants to be able to sort of reveal that thing to John so that John will yeah. be really impressed by it. Yes, he wants to inspire and impress. And I don't think he ever wants to beat John. I think he always wants to be raising the bar. Like he loves the raising of the bar. And so I think you're right. And I agree, impress, but also, also inspire. Because just knowing that he said, I was a bit worried about John at this time. I think, and just knowing what um, Hunter Davies said, that that Paul seemed to make John come alive in the studio. I think that Paul knows that part of his job is to breathe energy into John because John can go inward. And as he says, can be the laziest person in the world. I think his brain is fermenting when he's being like physically lazy. So I don't think it's entirely lazy, 
But, you know, I just think that this is one of Paul's superpowers is he's got a, just a tremendous amount of energy. Yes, he's a dynamo. <laughs> he is a dynamo. <laughs> An annoyance to many people, I'm sure most of all to his wife. Oh, my God, I can't even imagine what poor Linda McCartney had to go through on yeah. her own. I just picture her late at night being like, yeah, that's a great idea, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is you're talking about, I'm, I'm fully behind it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So anyways, I just think that this is really an important point to make about Paul is that he's very excited and inspired in this period. And he's getting this influence of the Ashers and he's physically distanced and apart from John. So all of these issues are creating, I think, some of the issue that John would later discuss in 1969, that when he was going through murder, Paul was full of confidence. And I think that he noticed this and it hurt him. Like the fact that he compares the two means I was hurt that I was going through such a shitty time and he was feeling good. And there was a real difference in where we were at, you know? Yeah, totally. That's all I have to say about this one. All right. I will tell you what I feel strongly about. And that is most people's attitude to things like music and painting, culture with a capital C. If a navvy or a worky is seen coming out of an art gallery, it's a joke. Now, if, if, all a person wants to do is find out about strip clubs in Hamburg. His mates would have thought that was all right. Paul's father stop. was a cotton set. Stop, stop, okay. stop. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say stop. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What have you got? Do you have anything to say about this one? Oh, well, it reminds me of him. He makes exactly the same point on TV in 1967 that he, he hates this sort of segment like approach to art this is high art this is low art this yeah, is yeah. high culture this is mass entertainment and right. um yeah his approach is very much about breaking down these kind of boundaries exactly um, and it, it, i think it's it's um symptomatic of the fact that he rejects snobbery in yes. all forms yes and and that in itself is part of what makes him an equal candidate for being a working class hero to john ono lennon <laughs> Oh, equal. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually a really lovely articulation of Paul and his rejection of the um, black tinted glasses earlier is a rejection of snobbery. And it's so funny that Paul was then depositioned by John as the one that was bourgeois, you know. But yeah, I think that that's a great point, Duncan. Paul is way ahead of his time in terms of this understanding that culture is culture and that we are putting limitations on what is culture. And, you know, I think he would have understood this being the Beatles. And actually, some people did take them seriously. And then some people did reject them and say they're just pop. This is something that he and John and the Beatles have had to deal with for the past four years, you know, people um, celebrating them or being snobs to them. But I also think that this is the clash of both his working class roots and living with the Ashers. I suspect the Ashers would have been very, very progressive in their views about this. You know, they're progressive enough to let their 17-year-old daughter, let her rock star boyfriend live with them, you know? And I suspect that this is something that would have been discussed in their home from, the, from what I've heard about what their home life was like. But I also think that Paul empathizes with this because I suspect he might have been a little bit like this himself, or at least he knew 
what the criticisms from working class buddies would have been, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit like um, not be being suspicious of uh, musical formalism and yes. um, yeah, that kind of analytical approach to it is one which which places those sort of cultural boundaries around something in yes. his mind, which is why he doesn't want, he'll put a toe in the water of that, yes. but not so much that he then can't get out of it again. Yes, and, and exactly. And he wants to enjoy all art. And I agree with you, putting rules around what is high art and not art. Um, and, you know, Paul's one of the most celebrated artists in the world at this point. And I actually wish he had talked about this more because it's such an interesting point. And, you know, this is Paul in 66 making this point. Now, I don't think he's especially clear in his articulation of it, but it, it was an interesting point to be making. I know what you mean, that it would be good if he if he emphasized this a little bit more, like when asked, um, what did the Beatles achieve? And, yeah. and what, are, what do they mean to you? Yes. Instead of saying, oh, we were just a great little band. Uh, <laughs> instead of saying that, if yeah. he actually said something along the lines of when nobody else could get out of a very rigid and, and segmented way of thinking about music and culture, we managed to draw all of these threads of it together and say that and, and reveal the way pop music could could be elevated to the status of high art and that yes. high art also had great elements of populism to it. Exactly. And they did that. They just did that instinctively, you know, and that, that is the benefit of their massive understanding of music is that they did that. And that reflects what Miles was saying, too, that they, unlike other bands, and I would disagree, I think a lot of bands were trying to make art, but he says they were trying to make art and change the world. And, you know, one would think that only John and Yoko were interested in doing that the way that it has been positioned, but the Beatles. This is what they truly did was change the world and they made lasting art, you know, Absolutely. and Paul was talking about it, just not very well in 1966. I think, again, I could get hate mail for this, but um, I think Paul is very genuine in his um, democratic egalitarian yes. ideas of art being this very open thing. Yep. Whereas I think um, John and Yoko could make uh, self-conscious statements to that effect but a lot of their actions and, and some of the other statements they made betrayed a very different view of art as a very rarefied thing that belongs to special people like us. <laughs> Absolutely. The thing about John and Yoko is I think that um, despite some of their snobbery they put a lot of ideas into the world and they were idealists you know like working class hero even though we can sort of say well that's kind of hypocritical because john you actually said you didn't want to ha you want him to be so rich that you wouldn't have to deal with any people um you know so there is that side to it but also he is from a working class background and so it is cool that he is willing to champion that you know what i mean so it's complicated yeah, yeah. but i think you're right paul always walks the walk and i like how uh, you define that he is anti-snobbery and very democratic and populist in terms of his view of art and the enjoyment of art. And, and I think you see that even in, in their albums. Paul throws in one that will appeal to a granny, and that's not a bad thing to Paul. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's real, you know, inclusivity, isn't yes, it? Exactly. I saw an article from this time where he said, it was funny. He said, uh, I'd be very upset to know that a, a young woman or a, a granny wouldn't like our music. And he said, because I like old grannies and I like young women, so I want them to like our music. And that's the complexity of Paul again. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from? how a beetle lives number four by maureen cleave paul all alone running hard to catch up with the music. The scene shifts from Weybridge to London. Paul McCartney's face often wears an expression of sweet, grave and trusting innocence. The expression is an engaging one, but it is no clue to his character. Those who like to think of Paul writing yesterday, that song of aching beauty, would do well to remember that he himself always called it scrambled eggs. He is an interesting and complicated young man of 23. He arrives in the restaurant for lunch with a book he has just bought, a costly and significant looking paperback entitled In the Bronx and Other Stories. He opened it at random, composed his features and in a solemn voice began to read it aloud. Lucy had no panties on. Paul's party political program is for more houses, more buses and more old age pensioners for everyone. He is tall, agile, neatly dressed, and well-organized. His hair is never too long, and he is never at a loss for words. He is a terrible tease, an excellent mimic. He has wicked charm, a shriveling wit, a critical intelligence, and enormous talent. With Paul, you never get away with the ill-considered remark, the hazy recollection. He is self-conscious, nervy, restless, and on the go. He will surprise us all in the end. He is half beetle and half not. He relies on the others to the extent of having considered living in Weybridge with them. I thought maybe we should all be grown-ups together, he said. I then thought, I don't want to live in Weybridge. To their own self be true. Polonius, Hamlet. His conversation is as peppered as a restoration comedy with the sides of this sort. They can be disconcerting. Oceptid Isle is one he likes, but he relates it to nothing in particular. And so Paul lives alone in London. I love the look of London, he said. He goes to the pictures, does the Times crossword, drives himself around in his Mini or his Aston Martin DB6, goes shopping, keeps appointments, finds out what he wants to know. He tolerates a minimum of fuss. Chauffeurs and cars with black windows. He hates black windows. I'm thinking, he said tartly, of getting a bicycle with black windows. He enjoys moving without detection. He arranges to get in and out of the country, loves disguises, relishes writing songs under the pseudonym of one Bernard Webb, a student in Paris. Skiing recently, a photographer came up to him and said, You are Paul McCartney. Who, me? said Paul with the aforementioned expression on his face. And the man went away. It is possible his much publicized courtship of Miss Jane Asher has made him secretive. If anybody gets away with a quiet wedding, it will be Paul. 
At the moment, he is on a program of self-improvement that he is embarrassed to discuss. But his mind, by all accounts, is in a ferment. I don't want to sound like Jonathan Miller going on, he said, but I'm trying to cram everything in, all the things I've missed. People are saying things and painting things and writing things and composing things that are great, and I must know what people are doing. He has a music lesson a week from a composer, who is by no means thick, he said admiringly. At school, I never got further than the six-finger exercise, satirical joke, and the other day I felt like an old person sitting there saying, I wish I'd learned to read music. So I started to learn. One of the first bits of music he wrote down was something for his girlfriend, Jane, to play on her classical guitar. He is fascinated by composers like Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio. He is most anxious to write electronic music himself, lacks only the machines. He is fascinated by the work of the French playwright Alfred Jarry, Ubu Koku, Ubu Roy, and keeps urging Brian Epstein to stage them here. He would like to paint, he would like to write. Indeed, heaven knows what he is painting and writing and in what disguise at this very moment. He sees no limits to his own possibilities. Ideally speaking, he would like to know everything. I vaguely mind people knowing anything I don't know, he said. I will tell you what I feel strongly about, and that is most people's attitude to things like music and painting, culture with a capital C. If a navvy or a worky is seen coming out of an art gallery, it's a joke. Now if all the person wants to do is find out about strip clubs in Hamburg, his mates would have thought that was all right. Paul's father was a cotton salesman, and his mother was a midwife. She died when he was 14. He could remember when he was five, standing up at his mother's backyard, 72 Western Avenue Speak, and asking himself what he would be when he grew up. No answer came back to me, he said, disappointed. He likes quick results. The problem cropped up again when he was 17. I had just enough GCEs to get into a teacher's training college. I worked it out. Five O levels plus one A level equals teaching. But I had a horror of doing something ordinary. And so he filled in no forms for the teacher's training college. With things I don't want to do, Paul said, well, I just don't do them. He ended up a beetle. We know something would happen sooner or later. We always had this little blind Bethlehem star ahead of us. Fame is what everyone wants in some form or another. There may be millions of people all over the world annoyed that people haven't discovered them. What's up, they asked themselves. Fame, in the end, is getting off your parking fine because he wants your autograph. And fame is being interrupted when you're eating by a 50-year-old lady with a ponytail. The four of us are known to almost everyone in the world, but we don't feel that famous. I mean, we don't believe in our fame the way Zsa Zsa Gabor believes in hers. Being a songwriter, he is now very rich. He has learned to discipline himself with money. I like the idea of anything grand and rich as a novelty, he said. I like chauffeurs as a novelty, but take John. John discovered the other day that he liked Bourneville chocolate. Well, he bought a consignment. I mean, it was on every table in the house, and in a week he was pretty sick of it. I've learned to do things in clumps. I mean, if you can have everything, there's no point in having everything, is there? I don't think I want much more money. His interest in politics is confined solely to this general election. Just like the Liston Clay fight, he said, here are two people flogging away at each other. One of them kidding he hasn't seen the other, and the other one pretending to be the head boy of a school, crying because they've lost the football match on Saturday. The terrible thing is seeing them going around adapting themselves, being friends with the people, 
Forget the 50 guinea suit, they say, and then they say, oh look, it's torn just like yours. After Wilson got hit in the eye, he had to say, I won't press charges. He can't even get annoyed, I bet he wanted to wring the little bastard's neck. Baptised a Catholic, his interest in religion is flabby. Indeed, if it were not for his concern with the afterlife, he would call himself an atheist. He is no longer, however, obsessed with worry about growing old. That wore off, he said. If our bodies stayed young, our minds would have to stay young, and nobody wants that. But Bertrand Russell seems all right. I wouldn't mind being like him at all. It is surprising to find him in favour of subsidies for the arts and on the side of the BBC. What America needs, in his opinion, is a BBC. Whether you want to listen to it or not, he said, it's there. They have hardly any plays on television in America. Here we have a lot of plays. You hear people say, I like a good play. Well, in America, like in 1984, plays are out of the dictionary. They have willed themselves into this. It makes me sad for them. And it's a lousy country where anyone who is black is made to seem a dirty N-word. There is a statue of a good N-word doffing his hat and being polite in the gutter. I saw a picture of it. We look at things a lot better over here. We have made a million of these little societies preserving things. We have little societies to preserve barrels of beer, and little John Benjamin societies, and little Ban the Bomb societies. Oh, Septed Isle, he said, and went on to discuss what he likes to call the teenage thing. He thinks the Americans had it coming to them, and he is delighted that where they got it from was us. There they were in America, he said, all getting house trained for adulthood with their indisputable principle of life. Short hair equals men, long hair equals women. Well, we got rid of that small convention for them. You can't kid me the last generation were any more moral than we are. They hid it better. If you wheedle it out of people, they were just as bad as we are, only they grew out of it. Perhaps, he said, with the air of one hitting on the truth, perhaps they grew too tired for it. He doesn't really know what he will do next. He is confident that it will be exciting. He will shortly move into a house he has bought in North London. One gathers that it was built in 1830 and that it is the most elegant house in England. Not least of its charms for Paul is that it has a street lamp post outside its front gate. He prepared to drive to Weybridge to write songs. He had one in his pocket about loneliness and old age. In fact, a heart-rending song. It concerns Miss Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, it begins, picks up the rice in a church where a wedding has been. But as I have said, Paul's songs are no clue to Paul. I don't know whether poets think that they have to experience things to write about them, but I can tell you our songs are nearly all imagination, 90% imagination. I don't think Beethoven was in a really wicked mood all the time. He was? Paul's face assumed the grave, sweet, innocent expression. Oh, he said, Beethoven can't be the same as us after all then. We'll be back with part two very soon, so please stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.